Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 282, and today's guest is Colin Byrne, partner at Two Sigma Ventures. Unless you are already in the sector, topics within the manufacturing and supply chain industry were probably not on the radar for most people. As consumers, when you went to the store, you bought what you needed, and that was that. However, people became very aware of the importance that these industries play in our lives during the pandemic when everything changed. Supply chain and manufacturing issues were the topics of the nightly news as shelves were bare with lots of essential items missing or purchasing a new car was almost impossible due to inventory shortages. Even though technology has helped these industries evolve over time, there is still a massive opportunity for disruption within the manufacturing and supply chain industries. It is a topic that Colin thinks deeply about in terms of making investments, and we start out our conversation with a discussion around the trends and opportunities for this particular sector. Two Sigma Ventures is an early-stage venture firm that was started in 2012 under the Two Sigma umbrella. The firm has made over 100 investments across many different industries. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like Colin's professional background, including how he gained experience in the tech industry initially, and then as an investment banker at Lehman Brothers, what led him down the path of early stage investing and starting Two Sigma Ventures, an overview of the firm today, including portfolio examples, his decision-making criteria for making new investments, how the tech scene has evolved in New York City, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, the VentureFizz Weekly Digest email is the must-subscribe email to keep you connected to the tech scene. You'll receive lots of information on companies, advice for your career, and other fun tidbits. Sign up at VentureFizz.com register. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Colin. Colin, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Nice to see you, Keith. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you, Colin, because we've got a lot to talk about. You've done a lot as an investor, uh, and then we're going to talk about your career and some general advice questions. But something that is uh, very critical to our world, our economy, and we've definitely felt the ripple effects of these industries over the past couple of years, especially with uh, the pandemic, it's manufacturing supply chain and logistics. And you know these are things that people probably thought about, but they really came to the forefront with the pandemic and when we noticed the shelves were bare. Um, you know so the, so I think people became very educated on these issues very quickly. So I know you think deeply about these areas and how technology can make a significant impact on improving these sectors. So as an expert or someone who's thinking about this a lot, I thought it'd be perfect opportunity to really address these sectors. Yeah, it's it's totally true. And I mean, I, I think we, in some ways, we had gotten lulled into a situation that um, uh, has now quickly uh, sort of we we all realized quickly how um, how good these systems were actually working until they stopped working, right? And it was it was the classic case of I think boiling the frog, right? It's like. We, you know, 20 years ago, if you wanted to uh, stock up on something or or buy something, you had to go to a mall or you had to go to Target. And then all of a sudden we started, not all of a sudden, gradually over time, we started to be be um, much more able to get these things delivered to us. Many more people chose that option. Uh, but even the stores themselves, even the, the Walmarts and the Targets of the world got really efficient about something called just-in-time inventory inventory right not having lots of inventory sitting in their warehouses or in their in their back rooms they would get deliveries every day based on the forecast of what they were going to sell that day and they got very very good at it over time and and all of the back end became very good at supporting both that just in time inventory delivered to the stores and of course the the um uh you know the the e-commerce that was being delivered to our homes and then the pandemic happened and China, which was a huge part of driving so much of the uh, of this incremental progress in logistics, took a very different approach because of a lot of different, you know, sort of cultural things related to China. They took a very different approach in terms of how they were going to manage COVID by, you know, just forcing people to stay home and shutting things down. And of course, that started a a domino effect and it really is a domino effect that that played out and in some ways is still playing out throughout the supply chain uh, and logistics ecosystem and then we all started to feel the effects of it not not just in not being able to get um you know initially masks and and the sort of protective gear that we wanted for hospitals etc but then toilet paper shortages and you know you name it and then it was semiconductors and then it was 
cars and uh, you know, it just it just has had this amazing effect. And I think it woke everyone up, myself included, but other people, too, to how dramatically uh, um, tenuous these supply chains were and how uh, they are not very protected against events like this. And so I think a lot of people, you know, again, us at Two Sigma Ventures and others are thinking about how this is going to change going forward. There are some other societal um, trends that are impacting this too, relative to the U.S. And, and technology is playing a big role in it. But I think, I think we all kind of got lulled to sleep, thinking this is just an amazing world that works. You know, something shows up the next day at Amazon and from Amazon, and um, and uh, you know, I think we're all we're all realizing now it's, it wasn't actually as easy as it seemed. So, how is technology going to play a role in this? I mean, I, I see. You know, there's uh, you know major investments in the U.S. around chip manufacturing. So, what like, like what are some of the trends you're seeing from how technology will help address? Yeah, I I think one of the reasons it worked so well is because it was very labor driven over the last 20 years. A lot of our manufacturing was you know uh, you know people in in these massive factories of Foxconn and other places assembling our iPhones and um uh, and it's it's been a it's been a very labor driven enterprise. We are excited at Two Sigma Ventures about the kinds of manufacturing that and the and the specific parts of manufacturing I'll get into some details in a minute that are um disruptable or innovatable through technology so for example take the take the um challenge of producing a metal part that part might go into a car it might go into a, a SpaceX rocket engine it might go into a, a hip joint or a knee replacement um Many of those metal parts are uh, there's something called CNC machining, which is you take a block of metal and you cut the the part out of a, a block. You basically are, it's the opposite of additive manufacturing. It's more like sculpture. You're just subtracting uh, something from the block and you re result in the part you want. That's been a very a pretty manual process. It requires a skilled machinist sitting in front of a you know half a million dollar machine called a mill. Uh, a five-axis mill, perhaps, and it, it you know you put the part in, it cuts it, you take it out, you measure it, you turn it, you put it back in, it makes another cut, takes about you know sometimes a day or two to produce a part. Um, many of those, the parts of that, uh, by the way, that that um, industry is going through some major disruption or, or you know challenge because many of those skilled machinists are aging out of the workforce and they're not being replaced. And so we're very excited about how technology can. Uh, automate some of those functions that we do, we simply no longer have the skilled machinist labor uh, that we could rely on in the past. So for example, now you can actually put the part in the machine, use some lasers, et cetera, to measure very, very precisely, am I achieving the tolerances I need? You can automate the rotation of the part and then plan the, use software to plan the next cut. So actually something that took a very skilled, you know, master's level um, uh, labor uh, a few years ago. Now you can do, and it took a day. Now you can do it in a matter of minutes or hours using technology. And we're, so we're excited. We have an investment in this space. There are a number of other companies. Um, we're excited about examples like that, where you can uh, uh, not just replace labor, but actually solve a, a gap of labor uh, through technology and manufacturing. That's really interesting. And I, it's something I can kind of relate to. My brother-in-law is a machinist. And he builds custom parts for, um, you know, CBG companies that are, you know, it's like the the assembly line of uh, filling coffee, like the bags of coffee that we get from whatever brand. There's a machine that obviously is created to fill all those coffee bags. Right. And it's a custom machine that th this company sells and builds for the CPG brand or, or company. So it's very specialized what he does. And I don't see a supply chain of talent coming in to replace what he does. He's been doing it for a long time. So it's very fascinating that that's, you know, a great use case for technology. Yeah. The average age of those people, like your, your you said your brother, I think your, uh, the average age of those people is going up. There's not a pipeline, unfortunately, of people being trained. And so what it's resulting in is that the customers for his labor are, it's just taking longer and longer. So this is one of the many, many strains on the supply chain is now if you're ordering a metal part, your lead time, which might have been four weeks before, is now 12 weeks or 14 weeks or 18 weeks. And of course, you have to, you know, you can't be be agile and nimble if you're if you can't uh, get parts, you know, if it takes three months to get a part. Fascinating. Yeah, there's so many areas where this technology is ripe for disruption. All right, let's uh, rewind the clock. So where, where, where did you grow up? What were you like as a child? 
Uh, okay, my childhood was actually kind of 50-50. I was born in Ireland and I lived there till I was eight. And then I moved to the Bay Area when I was eight. My dad was a lawyer. He, my, my parents had the classic American dream. It was, let's let's get out of this gray skies, rainy Ireland. It was 19 mid-1980s. Ireland was actually, there was a lot of crime, a lot of petty crime happening in Ireland then. Uh, just didn't feel like a great place to, to raise their four sons. And so we moved to sunny Bay Area and uh, so I moved to the South Bay and I spent some time in the East Bay and the North Bay all around the Bay Area. And um, yeah, I mean, that was a big change. As a kid, I was I was like a big news junkie. I was like, I really liked news and current events. I, I read the, the physical newspaper every day. I actually read two newspapers every day, San Francisco Chronicle and, and the local paper. Uh, I went to bed every night watching the after watching the 10 o'clock news, which is it's probably something that like modern parenting would say is a terrible, terrible idea. Like <laughs> listen to stories Stay about away like, from the news. <laughs> yeah. Listen to true crime yeah. stories and, you know, for an hour and then go to sleep. Like that's not, not exactly what we'd recommend these days, but that, that was me. Um, you know, I had like, as the youngest person I know to have like a time magazine subscription. I, I just really wanted to know how the world worked. I think that was like my, my thing. I liked systems and, and thinking about like, why, why does everything happen the way it happens? Why, why, why is, is the world functioning this way? Well, it's just a funny story about the magazine subscription. So um, my wife and I both remember getting Newsweek at home and I, I would read it. I, I don't know if it was cover to cover, but I definitely, that was kind of how I kept up to speed. And she, she recently started subscriptions to actual physical magazines again. Yeah. To, so, cause that's how she wants to consume them. She doesn't want to do it on an iPad and she's, doesn't want social media to pick the content for her anymore because that's a mess. So anyways, I, I, I was the same way. I, I literally did read it cover to cover. And by the way, it was a big like everyone. It was either time or Newsweek. You had to be one or the other. It was like choosing yeah. a camp. Right. Um, so we chose time. But I, I, I read every single article every I think it was a weekly magazine. Right. I read it every week. And, and I just I just loved it. It's how I like educated myself about the world. Yeah. So what, why did you choose to go uh, east to Amherst to, to study economics? Yeah, it was actually, so, you know, if you think about it, I, I grew up half in Ireland, half in California. I, I was like one of these kind of mixed identity kids. I didn't know, am I Irish? Am I American? Like what, you know, so the East Coast was like halfway between the two. It was literally like as simple as that, like lots of good colleges on the East Coast. And I'm kind of, I'm kind of going to this place halfway between these two places I've lived in my life. And, uh, and I really liked small schools. I, I, I knew I wanted a liberal arts education you know I, I i had dabbled a little bit with with some pro early programming in high school and i sort of i kind of knew early on like i really like technology but i'm i'm not i'm not going to be obsessive enough to be a, a good programmer to like i'm I, I like to float a little higher up in the trees than that i like to think about how things are interconnected and i'm not going to be like the, the guy who's obsessing over my code the way that, you know, I saw some other people. So I kind of wanted a liberal arts education to sort of continue my ability to think about lots of different things and how they're interconnected. And um, uh, so that led me to, to Amherst College. Someone should write a book, maybe someone has, I don't know, about the liberal arts education and the NESCAC schools. Because if you look at the number of entrepreneurs that have graduated from uh, um, Reed Hastings, Bowdoin. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the founder of eBay is Tufts Omidar. I'm going to not get yep, his name right. Yep. Um, it's just, I mean, there's probably tons and tons and tons of others across all those great schools. So yeah, um, yeah, it's 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 an education that I think is a great foundation. Well, it's just, it's different, right? It's just, you have to get things different ways. For me, that was like a, an education in how to think, right? It's like, you know, and I, I was an economics major and I, I was a double major actually in economics and then something else called law, jurisprudence and social thought. And so if I just take those separately, economics for me was easy. Like I, I did a summer program before college where I took a macro economics course and that that just clicked for me. That that sort of made sense with my like news junkie current value. Like, oh, this is how the world works. This is why taxes and interest rates and supply and demand and comparative advantage and government spending. This is why all this stuff kind of fits together and results in, in you know, it's not perfect, but it, it, you can kind of explain the world looking at how those big things move. So that that really helped me. And then the law jurisprudence and social thought thing is kind of like it's Amherst College's version of it's not pre-law. It's much more a blend of like philosophy and psychology and law. It's kind of like, why do societies incentivize the things they incentivize? How do they punish people when people don't follow social order? Uh, and, uh, you know, it was really thinking about those kinds of things. Like, are, are we are we setting up our culture and our society in the right way to reward the, the kinds of behavior we want and to foster those kinds of behavior? So that was the kind of thinking I was doing in college 
did again, I took some computer science classes in college. I wanted to make sure I was sort of conversant in that. Um, uh, but but that was my college experience, um, you know, in a nutshell, is just thinking about how to think and, and how to write. I'll say that too. Writing was a big part of it. Absolutely. That's such a critical skill set. So how did you get involved in the tech industry? Yeah, so I um, I graduated college in 2001. Uh, I had done some, in- so, you know, growing up in Cal, I would go back every summer to California. I would intern um, at, uh, first I interned at my dad's law office. And then I said, you know, law is not for me. I don't want to do that. And then the next summer I got in, this was the summer of 1999. So right in the heart of the dot-com boom in uh, in San Francisco, I got a job. I can't even remember how, but I got a job at a company called Andromedia, which was, it was actually like one of the parts of the business was a precursor to some of the things that Netflix was doing, not so much on the content side, but Andromedia built, I think the first engine that said, if you like this movie, you should also think about this movie, like just kind of comparatives, like, like like-minded, some of that kind of stuff. They were a media and advertising company. But it was 1999. It was like the company had a few million dollars of revenue and was planning to go public that fall. <laughs> and, and I, I was like, the young guy was like, can I have some shares in the IPO? And they're like, sure, of course. It, it didn't IPO. I never made any money from it. But um, it was like that. That was definitely the culture. And I was sort of like fascinated by it. Um, the following summer, I, I moved to New York for the first time. And I worked at a company called DoubleClick, which was one of the you know first real technology companies in New York. Um, again, in the ad tech space. And uh, I fell in love with New York and I can talk more about that. Um, but I also just loved, I loved the environment of technology startups. I just, I just really uh, enjoyed the entrepreneurial spirit, the the way that you could sort of pick a thing. Like they're, they're small enough companies that you could say, hey, can I work on that? That looks like it needs doing. And someone would say, sure, go for it, do a good job. Um, so, so, you know, I just, I just loved that startup uh, philosophy. And, and by a year later, when I graduated college, that was, uh, that was kind of ending. So I, I took a slightly different path from then on. Perfect segue. So what'd you do kind of getting your career started from there? Yeah. So, so uh, my, um, my, my goal would have been to work at a tech company or, or in and around tech. There weren't a lot of startups in 2001 as the, as the bubble was bursting that uh, we're trying to hire, you know, we would hire people like me who are not, programmer. So I did what I thought was the next best thing, which is go be a technology investment banker. I could pay off my student loans or at least start to pay off my student loans and still work on technology. And then the other key skill set, I mean, as I said, I got a liberal arts education. I didn't take a single finance class. I took economics, but not sort of corporate finance. They they literally didn't have those classes in, in Amherst College. So for me, going to Lehman Brothers from 2001 to 2003 when I did investment banking was was really my was like my graduate school it was like my technical college almost learning how to how to model how do income statements and balance sheets work all that kind of classic corporate finance stuff I learned in my couple of years there which which really has helped me you know now almost 20 years later in in my work now that's just it was technical training that I needed um, in 2003, I made a switch at Lehman to going from from investment banking into corporate strategy, which was really working for the leaders of the business. I was trying to buy small startups actually and bring them into Lehman, do M and A for Lehman. Uh, and then in 2005, um, I got a call from this place, Two Sigma. Um, uh, but anyway, I'll, I'll pause there just in case in case you want to ask anything about the, the Lehman experience. But you know, it was really valuable to get that sort of technical training while I was there. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's, uh, you know, everyone's familiar with the rigors and <laughs> the hours of what you, you know, learn from that. And it's just great, great foundational experience too. Yeah. So what brought you to Two Sigma? Yeah. So Two Sigma was, um, you know, so this was 2005. Uh, it was, uh, you know, I was at sort of this crossroads of my career. I thought about going to business school. I actually applied to business schools. I didn't get into Stanford business school. If I had gotten in, I probably would have gone and, you know, changed my trajectory in whatever way, positive, negative, I don't know. But uh, but I didn't get in there. I got into a couple other schools that I uh, I was sort of a little less excited about. So that was one option. Another option was to stay at Lehman Brothers, which at the time, you know, the word Lehman Brothers is a trigger now. But at the time, Lehman was a hundred year old company that everyone was like, oh, this is great. Uh, I was on a nice promotion path. I kept getting promoted and, you know, I had a pathway up and that, that looked like a nice steady path. Um, but I got a call from this scrappy little uh, startup technology hedge fund that was based in Soho in this kind of creaky 
old factory building where like the roller, if you got up out of your chair, your rolling chair, it would just kind of roll away because the floors <laughs> were so slanted. Um, but I, I, I took an interview there and I was like, yeah, this is it for me. This is, this is back to what I wanted, you know, five years ago at, at a startup, like, you know, the people that are just incredibly motivated, incredibly entrepreneurial, very smart, uh, very driven, you know, I met with the two founders of Two Sigma who, you know, I think were just the smartest people I had ever met at that point in my life. They they probably still are. Um, uh, so I, I just I just fell in love with the culture and the the drive and the ambition. And uh, and it was the classic experience of like, if they'll have me, I don't really care what title is on the is on the job. I just I want to join this place and, and you know, see where it goes. I think it's important for our people that are listening to understand, like, what Two Sigma is, because you you know, went down the path of helping them start their ventures arm, but two Sigma is, there's a lot to that company. So what, like, how would you describe it? Yeah. Well, I mean, so I'll describe it then and today. So, you know, okay. two Sigma was born in, in around the same, uh, around the 2001, around when I, when I graduated from school, um, your, your listeners may be too young to remember this, but it used to be that stocks were traded in like, not in, in dollars and cents and decimals, but in, in, you know, fractions, right? The stock would be trading at eight and a quarter or five and three eighths or something. And that changed around, I can't remember, it might've been the late nineties or 2000 when, when it was called the decimalization of the stock market. Instead of eight and three eighths, it was, you know, 8.375 or 0.38. And so, so that was one thing. It was the world was becoming more sort of more uh, digital, if you will. Um, and, and there was just a, an exponentially increasing amount of data and information, even back 20 years ago, this is obviously continued. The trend has continued today, drives a lot of work, what we're doing on the venture side, which we'll get into, but two Sigma was born with the idea that there's a, there, there's too much data in the world for a human trader to say, I want to buy Microsoft or sell Microsoft. It's just that that person can have a few data points in their mind, but they can't know that there's actually Microsoft is actually very correlated with IBM. And here's what's happening with IBM. There's just too much, there was too much data and information to try to assimilate. So Two Sigma came about and he said, you know what? Computers are much better at crunching data than we are. They're much better at doing mathematical understanding of correlations and probabilities and risk, et cetera. So Two Sigma was one of the pioneers and there were a few others at the time of, of uh, what is often called quantitative or systematic stock market investing. So you build models, build computer models, those models take in data, they make, uh, they they give basically um, recommendations to another model that's often called an optimizer, which, uh, which decides to build a portfolio, and then it executes and trades that portfolio. So it's really like a software company that uh, where the product is trades that they make in the stock market, and they hope to make money on more of them than they lose money on. You know, so it's a it's a software company built with a, a hedge fund shell, if you will. And it, you know, it, it was built by a Stanford mathematician, an MIT computer scientist and and started with three people and is now about 2000 people 20 years. Wow. Later. Amazing. So what led you down the path of creating more of that early investing venture arm? Yeah, so I I joined that that parent business. We expanded in a variety of different ways. I was sort of helpful in trying to you know take us in new directions. But but about uh, five years after I joined, so now we're in, let's call it 2010, 11, um, we started to think about how Two Sigma might diversify into, into things in the private markets. And there were kind of a few things that were happening at the time. The first was Two Sigma was growing a lot, you know, from three people when it started, it was about 70 people when I joined. And by this time in 2011, it was probably 300 people. And, you know, you, so people might think of Two Sigma as a hedge fund, so they might assume it's all finance people, but it's actually almost no finance people. It's all engineers, data scientists, quantitative researchers, mathematicians, uh, you know, much more like a Google or Facebook type of um, staff than a Goldman Sachs or something. Um, so, uh, so we looked around, we said, we've got all these really bright people here. We've got PhDs in so many different things from statistics to physics, to biology, to, you know, et cetera, so many bright people. So that, that was one fact is two Sigma had the, this breadth and death of expertise. A second big fact happening around this time, 2011 is New York, uh, kind of caught up to, and I think passed Boston as the number two market in the country for technology, venture capital, San Francisco and the Bay area, obviously being number one. But it started to feel real. Tech, you know, New York has always been a town built on finance and media and advertising and fashion. You know, those have been the big industries in New York. But it felt around this time like technology was kind of inching its way up into that um, 
upper echelon of things that's driving New York. And I think now, 10 years later, we would all say New York is a really good technology town, in addition to having those other things still be very prominent. So we could see it in the data. We could see, we could feel it around us. Two Sigma has always had its offices in Soho. We could see more startups popping up around us in Soho a decade ago. I've lived in Brooklyn. I could definitely see more startups here in Brooklyn. So that was happening. And then a third big trend, which is really the most important one, which relates back to the data thesis. You know, just as Two Sigma said, there's so much data in the world and computers are getting more and more capable. We can do more advanced things with software. So we think that's an, that's a recipe for how to build a successful investment management business. We said, you know what? That's a recipe for how to build a successful almost anything business, right? Every industry is in the process of being innovated through data science. Like there's more and more data being created in every industry. And what you can do with software and machines, you know, this is before we were talking about machine learning or artificial intelligence, but it's all just like a continual inexorable advance in progress in what you can do with technology. So we said every industry is going to be innovated through the application of data and advanced computing or advanced software. And so we said, let's go and see if we can utilize our expertise, all of our smart people, our position here in this growing venture ecosystem of New York to help us go and find all of those companies that are kind of like the two sigma of their industry. They're applying a very scientifically driven, very data-driven, very advanced software kind of mindset to how do we solve problems in hardware, software, consumer, enterprise, fintech, healthcare, you name it. All these different industries are going to be innovated through those things. So let's let's go see if we can find them. I, I literally got up on stage one day at a, at a company strategy offsite and I said, I think we could build a venture firm. I think it would be different than you know, many other VC firms out there, we'd have different set of advantages that we could try to exploit. Uh, here's how I think we could do it. And it was all hypothesis, uh, but, um, you know, in, in Two Sigma's ultimate, you know, folly or, or wisdom, we'll see how over time uh, they said, let's go, let's try it. And that was, that was the, the dawn of Two Sigma Ventures. What Like what's the size of the, the fund? Like is, is Two Sigma the LP? Like you don't have external LPs? No, in the first, so at first it was, that was, you know, one of the, one of the great things about Two Sigma is we can always try things ourselves before we expose them to clients capital. And so the first pool, of, first 20 investments or so were just Two Sigma's own money, the money of the, of the founders and senior employees of the company. Uh, but then in 20, so that was 2012. In 2014, we started our first fund, which was still mostly our own capital, but we had a small group of outside clients who basically came to us and they said, hey, we, we think it's interesting what you're doing on the venture side. And we said, oh, we may not be ready for prime time yet, but sure, if you want to participate with us, we'll we'll give you a third of it and we'll take two thirds of it. Um, so that was 2014. And then in 2019, we really went out to, you know, we we made plenty of mistakes, but but felt like we were doing some things right and and performance was heading in the right direction and, and looking good. So we went out in 2019 to raise then what we called fund three, because it was the third kind of pool of capital, but really the first time we went out to to third-party clients and, and investors. And, and now we've just completed the raise of fund four. So now it is it is the vast majority, about 90% of the capital is from traditional. Uh, venture investors like college endowments and hospitals and uh, nonprofit foundations and um, you know and the like. And what was the the details on Fund Four? Uh, so Fund Four we announced earlier this year. It's about four hundred. Well, it's it's two funds actually together. They're about four hundred million. One of them is an early stage focused fund. Most of what we do is is a is early stage. So that's the bulk of it, about three hundred and twenty million. And then and then the remainder, about eighty million, is what we call our opportunities fund, which enables to invest in some of the companies that from our earlier portfolios that are breaking out and succeeding. So we can put extra money into those as they as they grow and head towards well, hopefully successful outcomes and IPOs. So what were some examples of portfolio companies that you've already invested in? Yeah, so we've invested in about 100 companies over the last 10 years. We we uh, we just passed both those milestones this year, 10 years and 100 companies. So as you can imagine, it's about 10 per year. Um, we've had uh, a few companies IPO. We've had a few companies exit. It, it is a long game in venture capital. That's the that's the, both the blessing and the curse of it. You have to be patient. But um, I can I can give you some examples. One company I like uh, a lot, uh, and it's very tangible because I wear it on my wrist. is is a company called Whoop. Yeah, which it sounds like you know. I always like when you can show off something. Um, Whoop is a if, for for uh, for your listeners that don't know. It's a, a company that. Um, you wear this device on your on your wrist all day long. You'll notice it doesn't have a screen. It's just uh, a, a light that shines on my 
uh, on my wrist and reads my um, it, it you know checks the 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 electrical signals in the blood running through my by my body and it produces something called a heart rate variability score. That's the main thing it does. It does some other things too, but it tells me how well did I sleep last night. Um, gives me an assessment of uh, how recovered I am for the day. And then as I do anything, uh, any exertion during the day, if I work out or I go play basketball or uh, or I do yoga or something, it'll assess how, how strenuous that was. And it correlates those two things, uh, but really gives you a good sense of uh, how you react to various different stimuli in your body. If you drink alcohol, if you eat sugar, if you, you know, go to sleep too late, if, you're, if your wake times are very different, you really start to get a sense uh, over time wearing whoop as to the kind of behaviors that are good for you and the kind of behaviors that aren't, and, and you can adjust accordingly. Uh, and, you know, we invested way back now in 2015. So we've been an investor for seven years in the company and uh, they've been, they've been doing tremendous work. Uh, one of the most exciting new directions besides the kind of athletic um, stuff that I talked about, and, you know, they have lots of elite athletes wear it, LeBron James and Steph Curry and Michael Phelps and lots of soccer players at the world cup are wearing it right now. Um, but one of the exciting directions is on healthcare for them. You know, they, they, discovered during COVID that they were one of the best early signals that someone might be, uh, might be COVID positive. Uh, Colin, I know. <laughs> were you on? <laughs> okay. I, I had a whoop on and my levels went through the roof and I'm like, yeah. uh Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean the PGA tour, there was a, there was a, a golfer who discovered uh, you know, right as, right as this was getting very, uh, as, as sort of it was getting kind of intense before vaccines, the golfer discovered even before he had a positive test because his his respiratory rate was 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 very elevated. Um, and Whoop ended up going out and buying, uh, sorry, PGA ended up going out and buying Whoops for all the, the golfers and their caddies. So there's been some interesting stuff on that. They even announced recently, about a month ago, they announced a kind of a breakthrough study that I'm very excited about around um, pregnant women and the ability to detect the potential for uh, there's basically a signal that signals when the body is is about seven weeks away from preparing to give birth, and that signal is true even if someone is likely to deliver early. So there's mm. no good way right now for someone for a doctor to say you might be at risk of having a, a you know a, a delivery at week 35 as opposed to week 40. Uh, but Whoop has found some really statistically significant. Um, potential uh, signals of that uh, that propensity to potentially deliver early have an, have an early term birth so so there's there's fascinating implications there as well yeah i mean we could have a whole podcast about whoop because i mean it's just the founder will i mean it, i think someone like will obviously he's brilliant and went to harvard was captain of the squash team if i remember correctly uh, and that's how he kind of stumbled upon this problem but to do what he's accomplished i think it just tells the entrepreneurial tale of the endless possibilities that people can pursue if they are driven. Yeah. Uh, he wasn't like a, a an engineer thinking about hardware, all the data that Whoop creates and obviously building the relationships with LeBron James and the Navy SEALs and all these special forces. I mean, just, it's amazing what he's, what he's accomplished with that company. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, it's, it's never a straight line, right? Every company. And, and I think if you, if we had Will here today, he would say it's still not a straight line going forward. Like every company, you know, um, has to get through challenges. And one of the things that's so um, phenomenal about Will, and and I'd say for any aspiring entrepreneurs that are listening, um, you know, his, his persistence is just amazing. His commitment to his vision, he's got a North Star vision that he never wavers from, which is that you can unlock human performance if you just know more about what what are the inputs and out, how the in, how you react to these inputs and outputs. And he's never wavered. He's always said, you know, that's great for elite athletes. It's great for the dad who wants to go running on the weekend. It's great for the pregnant woman. It's great for the engineer who might be not sleeping enough. You know, everyone can get insights from this kind of thing. And, and he's just been so true to that vision. Um, uh, and, and that's what's carried the company through to its success. That that translates to people like me who, he's, you know, who want to invest in him. Uh, it translates to the employees that he's able to attract to that company, to the partners they're able to partner with. Um, you know, I, I think sometimes entrepreneurs out there are kind of looking for a problem and they kind of find one. But, man, you have to really be aligned with you have to be so passionate, uh, like authentic passion for the problem you're solving or else you're not going to have the you're unlikely to have the fortitude that it really requires to be successful, because, again, 
you know, every, every company goes through, goes through challenges, even, even the very best ones. The other thing that is a blessing for whoop, um, is the free marketing. When the golfer holds up the trophy that they just won at the major and their whoop band is right there. I'm just like, Oh yeah. my God, that is like a dream for marketers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's great. I mean, sometimes, sometimes LeBron is in a car ad and he's putting his hands on the steering wheel and there's the whoop right there. Whoop band. Um, it's, it's pretty cool. So what other sectors are you interested in? There's a lot going on in technology these days. A lot of conversation of AI that right now specifically. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, we can definitely talk about chat GPT and all that stuff. I mean, but one, one I'd never want to leave out of any conversation like this is we, we just think there's such a tremendous opportunity at the intersection of AI and data science and healthcare. And, and mm, we talked about it a little bit with, with the whoop conversation, but there's just such a transformation going on right now. And it's a, it's not a, like a, two-year trend or a five-year trend. This is like a 30-year trend where, you know, I think when we look back on it, when my children are, you know, in their 50s or 60s, like the way that they're dealing with chronic conditions or trying to detect cancer or Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or all these sort of debilitating things, they're just going to look back on the way we did it or, you know, and think it was the stone age. You know, it's just so dramatically different the way that we're understanding things about what diseases are, how do they function? You know, we used to think it was as simple as your DNA. Well, of course, DNA is now many different kinds of, uh, you know, uh, of genomics and metagenomics. And uh, there's just so many different things we're unlocking and learning about how the body works and therefore how to attack them and how to, how to treat them, how to prevent d disease, how to diagnose disease earlier uh, and how to treat disease uh, when we find it. I, I think there's such dramatic change happening there. We have a few companies that are what we can call, what we might call algorithmic drug discovery companies. So hmm. it used to be that you'd, you know, you'd test drugs. You'd have a, someone would have an intuition that you'd have a lot of like smart, very smart people in white coats doing pipetting on a lab bench and you'd sort of gradually make progress. But now we can do things at massive scale, many orders of magnitude, more scale using software machine learning, using things like advanced computer vision, uh, using robotics. So the the pace of discovery of new drugs is going gonna, is gonna to pick up dramatically. I think we're only now starting to see the first drugs coming to market that were actually uh, made or derived by AI. You know, many of them are in like phase one, phase two, phase three, and some of them are just starting to, to come to market. So I think 10, even 10 years from now, I think the way that um, uh, we approach healthcare is going to be so different. We're going to detect so many things earlier through passive sensors like, like the whoop and other things. Uh, and then we're going to have much better, more personalized, customized ways to treat them. We're tremendously excited about that space, about probably about 20-ish percent of our investing over the last few years uh, has been aligned with that thesis. And I expect that'll continue. So how do you decide what investments to make? Like what criteria are you looking for? How do entrepreneurs get in front of you or one of your associates or partners? Yeah, well, we find things lots of different ways. You know, we're it's that's our job, right? We've got to be connected uh, to um, the right channels, but also increasingly the world, especially post-COVID, you know, it, it used to be, it used to work pretty well if you were sitting in an office, you know, next to the campus of Stanford on Sand Hill Road, where a lot of VCs are, you could invest in things within 20 miles of you and you wouldn't miss much. Like a lot of stuff, you know, people, entrepreneurs used to feel like, man, I got to move to San Francisco. I got to move to Palo Alto or Menlo Park if I want to be an entrepreneur. I don't think people feel like that anymore. I think now um, entrepreneurs are spread out all over the country and, and all over the globe. And so our job is increasingly... Uh, not just relying on our own networks of people we know, but how do we go and find the entrepreneurs in other places? And so we've built some technology and things that can help us there and, and lots of different ways. But our job is to find them. Sometimes they find us. Sometimes other venture capitalists introduce us to them. But we want to find all those companies. And then what do we look for? Um, you know, I described how we're we we do have a thesis. Our thesis is what we call a horizontal thesis. So we can invest in almost any industry, but we do want to find companies where data science, where what we call advanced computing or software is a big driver of how they will succeed. Our thesis 10 years ago was that that's like a stripe of companies. There'd be some companies don't fit into that, but I think the way the world has gone, more and more companies fit into that. And that's uh, by definition, because virtually every company is considering itself a data company. Every company is using software. Many companies are trying to figure out how to use AI. Uh, so that that's a good thing for us. The world is our oyster. Almost any company is is investable for us. So we have to go and look, look for 
um, what are the large markets that are ripe for some kind of innovation? What new products, industries are being created that people have never thought of because of new uh, things that you can do with data? Um, like a lot of people, we spend so much time thinking about what is the ambition and vision of this team? Do we align with their vision? Are they ambitious enough? We have to invest in companies that we think can be multi-billion dollar companies someday. They're potential public companies that are going to be very important category leaders. Um, there are lots of entrepreneurs who are building companies that just, just aren't appropriate for us and may not be appropriate for any venture capital because you know the scale of their ambition is to make a company that can be worth $100 million someday and you know, they make 50 million of that and that's great. And many entrepreneurs should follow that path, but we're looking for the ones that are really, look, really trying to build breakout, big world impacting companies. And so a lot of what we have to do is, is evaluate that in the founder and, and see if we see a good alignment there. All right. So everybody's having a lot of talk about looming recession and the decrease in uh, venture capital investing. Everyone needs to get What's the term? Uh, well, the grand scheme of things is it's got to get profitable, but there's an actual term that I've heard a couple of times. If, is it default alive? Is that what you're thinking of? Or No, not that one. That's okay. that one I haven't heard okay. of yet, but it's probably the same vein of yeah. you got to be mindful of your expenses. There's not an endless yeah. pipe of venture capital funding at extraordinary valuations. Yeah. So what's what's what are your thoughts as we head into 2023? Yeah, I think uh, one of the good things is uh, I think entrepreneurs have gotten that message and, you know, every one of them that's pitched us over the last six months, I shouldn't say six months, certainly three months, um, they're much more attentive to that than they used to be. And and I think that's a good thing. I think definitely the industry got a little ahead of itself or maybe a lot ahead of itself. There was a lot of late stage money being applied, uh, being piled onto companies. Uh, you know, you see inefficiency, you see waste, you see sort of, you know, companies that are not just you know, not sort of figuring out how to turn all of that money into, into value for, for their companies over time. Um, so I, I actually think this is a great environment for us as investors. And I think it's a great environment for entrepreneurs too, because it really requires rigor and, uh, and the best entrepreneurs, many of the best, you know, you've heard this over and over again, many of the best companies are, are really formed in, in environments like this, where, mm -hmm. It requires a lot of attention to detail. So I'm excited about it. I, I think the entrepreneurs are being much more thoughtful. Sometimes in the past, um, the entrepreneurs kind of close their eyes and hope that things will just fix and revert. But I think this time they're not. I think, you know, we did have a very fast V-shaped recovery after the pandemic, you know, started in, in uh, March, April, May of 2020. But uh, I don't think anyone's expecting that fast recovery this time. I think everyone knows this is going to be a longer slog. And so you have to get to, you know, this concept default alive, which I think was coined by Paul Graham of Y Combinator. I might be wrong there is, is, you know, assume that you'll never raise another, another dollar for this company. Are you alive? Will you be alive? Are you, can you get to a place where you are cash flow break even and we'll we'll have the ability to succeed um, without raising any more money? Now, of course, hopefully you will raise more money, et cetera, but uh, if you don't need the venture capital markets, that's the best place to be for an entrepreneur. Um, so I'm I'm really excited about it. I think these are I think there are great companies that uh, that are formed in this period, and I think it's actually a, a you know for for our existing portfolio companies, and we have more than sixty active portfolio companies. Um, this is the time when they will look back and say, did we make the right moves in this period? Were we aggressive enough on cutting costs? Were we thoughtful enough about? shifting from playing defense to playing offense and what can we do that is um setting us up for success in the future um you know i think 2023 is going to be a big and important year for venture capital and and technology yeah i mean i think uh, a correction needed to happen and it's okay i mean i hope it doesn't go too yeah. deep and too long <laughs> like i know it's not going to be the v-shaped recovery like COVID had but um Valuations were so frothy and there's so like extraordinary amounts of that, like money being thrown at these companies yeah. that it just had to change. And companies that have a real product where there's value and companies are willing to pay for that product will succeed. <laughs> you know, it just, it's just business 101. So agreed. Uh, yeah. 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 I mean, it doesn't feel good right now because it's such a difference from what we experienced last year, but it's just called getting back to normal. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So what's the what's the vibe of the New York tech scene right now? You know, you you talked about how it, you know, kind of went through this moment of uh, you know, surgence where it passed Boston. And I mean, I I I follow all the 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 funding announcements and 
every day in New York, you know, even when things have slowed down, there's still multiple rounds that are getting announced for companies in New yeah. York every day. No, New York is New York is alive and active. I mean, it's it's uh, it's great, actually. It's you know, New York has the has the blessing of, you know, everyone was worried after, it, it, for a moment in the pandemic of like, OK, does everyone leave cities and never come back? Is our cities kind of no longer people think there's you know it's too much risk of disease and nobody wants to be on the subway and. Um, but you know that that was a V-shaped recovery too, because New York came back and opened up and was alive as soon as it as soon as it could, because people love the energy of New York, they love the the restaurants, et cetera. So it's felt socially alive for you know much of the last year, and the technology scene followed that pretty quickly. I think um, it has the benefit of being a place that a lot a lot of people want to live, and uh, so we feel great about New York. Um, but I will say, you know the 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 mode the the sort of most frequently occurring style of company that we invest in nowadays is a distributed company right and we'll see if that changes some people believe that might revert back and you know we're still in this period of trying to figure out does work from home work does hybrid work um all CEOs are trying to assess that at the moment, but I think many of our companies, you know, maybe the CEO is in New York and the team is somewhere else. Maybe the CEO is actually in Amsterdam and the team is spread everywhere. So um, it's it's really almost hard to say: is this a New York company or is this a what what where is this company? It's kind of the company is everywhere. Um, maybe where the CEO is is where the company is. So it's like there's still lots of people that want to work in New York. Maybe the sales folks on many of these companies will be in New York. Um, but it, it, you know, the, the, the vibe, it doesn't matter if the company's domiciled there, et cetera, like the vibe in New York for people and technology is still, is tremendously good. And I think you can see by virtue of, of many, um, VCs opening New York offices or having New York, having people based in New York that, uh, I think everyone's betting that will continue us too. So a question I like to ask investors, that's, uh, it's just, it, it's, it's a fun one because you always want to celebrate successes and, oh yeah, I invested in this company that exited or IPO'd or is scaling. But what are the ones that you were meeting with that you're like, I'm going to pass, but you're like, oh, I had an opportunity and, and somehow missed that one. Yeah. Huh. Um, well, probably the one that comes most to mind on that is um, a company called Neuro, N-U-R-O, that makes autonomous delivery vehicles. Uh, it's actually uh, the, one of the founders, a guy named, by the name of Dave Ferguson, used to work at Two Sigma. He and I overlapped at Two Sigma for a few years. And then he went, he left Two Sigma and went uh, to be one of the leaders of the of Google's early self-driving car project, well before they actually had any cars on the road, et cetera. He was one of the leaders there. And then he he had this idea for a, a kind of smaller purpose-built delivery vehicle, it looks like a small car or really kind of like a small, like a scaled down, like a 60% version of a minivan, but it doesn't have any, it, it will, ne it never had a test driver. It literally doesn't have a seat for a driver. Um, but because you make it sort of skinnier, you can actually do this interesting thing where you can design the, you know, not just because it's skinnier, but you can design the whole car not to protect anyone inside, but it, all it has to do is protect people outside. Like, mm. you know, you don't need any safety mechanisms focused. There will never be a person inside the car. So you don't need a single thing to ever worry about anything inside the car. If we have goods, et cetera, inside the car, who cares? But what we care about is don't hit anyone, don't cause any damage, don't hit a bicyclist, you know, et cetera. So they they were able to build this build this vehicle. Uh, and they're they're doing deliveries now for I think Domino's Pizza and maybe there's a maybe Kroger's in in Arizona and in California. And we had an uh, we had a look not 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 in the very earliest stages, but we had a look at the company when it was already valued at about a billion dollars. And we we were an early stage focused uh, fund. We didn't have any opportunities fund at that point. Uh, so we said, you know what? Ah, it's just it's just too highly valued for us. And, and by the way, I we I wish we had found it earlier and could have invested the seed stage. I wish we, I wish I had reconnected with David earlier. That was that was my fault, but. Um, we passed at the billion dollar valuation. Uh, most recent valuation was 8.6 billion. Um, you know, it'll, I think it'll keep going up from there. Uh, it's a, it's a really strong company. I think one of the best applications of, of autonomous vehicles, you know, that, uh, will actually be big. Um, even before we have lots of humans driving around in them, I think we'll have lots of groceries being delivered in them. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, 
this is a smaller scale than what you just talked about, but where my call, where my daughter goes to college, they have the little delivery robots roaming around campus to, to deliver right. their Grubhub or whatever they ordered. Right. Like, I'm just like, man, it's happening. Autonomous delivery. I mean, that's, I mean, that's a perfect use case because you're kind of in a closed campus world of camp. Yeah. So it's just, uh, it's, it, I'm like, yep, this is happening and it's just eventually going to progress. So, all right. Three apps you can't live without, you know, your whoop app, not being one of them. <laughs> apps i can't live without okay um i'm definitely a superhuman addict uh you, you might hear that from a lot of vcs but i i you know we do our job is a lot of email uh so so i love any kind of keyboard shortcuts etc um i actually this is kind of a, a slightly embarrassing but i actually still use an rss reader I like to consume, you know, my back to going back to my news thing. Like I don't really read um, uh, hard magazines anymore, but I do like, I, I don't feel satisfied just getting news from Twitter or something else that's algorithm based. I like, a, I like, there's a few just feeds like RSS feeds that I like to listen to, so, to, to follow. So I use an app called Feedly for that, that probably will, you know, my RSS readers die every few years and I have to find a new one. Yeah. Um, What's a third one? Um, uh, I, I use a lot of WhatsApp actually to communicate with people in Ireland, with with old uh, with cousins and things to communicate back uh, back in Europe, and and that's valuable to me. You know, I love the RSS feed one because I, I miss that too. I mean, I just yeah. I want algorithms to decide what I should be reading on LinkedIn or whatever social app like Twitter or whatever. I like I I, I want to decide. I just want. You know, things yeah, that... sometimes human curation is pretty good too. That's what a magazine yeah. is, right? It's like there's a human editor and, and that exactly. has value. Yeah. yeah. All right. What do you like to do for fun outside of work? I have three kids. I spend a lot of time with my kids outside of work. That's sort of like if I if I have time for anything, that's what I want to make time for. Uh, you know, they're 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 athletes. I like to go see their games and um I used to coach them in sports and then they all got too good for me to be their coach. So um so is that, and then if I can fit in a run and, and, you know, make my whoop happy, I'll, I'll do that every now and then, um, you know, a handful of times a week. And, um, uh, and then, yeah, I'm kind of a, I, you know, I'm, I'm still a, a current events and news person. So I still like to read a lot. Perfect. Well, Colin, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background story. Obviously all the thoughts about industries and what's happening and technology, how that's hopefully uh, disrupting different industries. And of course, you know, your work as an investor and, and uh, how people can get in front of you. My pleasure, Keith. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed the conversation. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.